welcome to Bookish at Bethel. I'm Carrie Pethley in the philosophy department, and I'm joined by Anne-Marie Koistra in the history department. And today our guest is Ray Van Aragon. He is a former philosophy professor and now the current dean of faculty. And he is joining us to talk about Plato versus Aristotle. Mm, Stay tuned. Well, again, thanks, Ray, for uh, coming on the show today. We're excited to uh, have a little chat with you. And today's episode is really about, as we think about humanities, what are the, what are the virtues of having Aristotle versus Plato? And you're, you're on the show kind of representing Plato. And so as someone who has never actually read Plato's Republic, I will make that confession. Yeah, everybody in, on the screen has just dropped their mouths to the floor I'm wondering, Ray, if you could just tell me what you think Plato's Republic is about. Well, um, I mean, it's about the the way it kicks off is the question of what justice is. And so the issue that comes up very soon into the book, into in book two, is the question of whether it's in your best interest to be just or to put it kind of colloquially uh, to do the right thing. Uh, when you can get away with not doing the right thing. And so you get, and so right away, you've got a question that I think grabs people, right? This is a, this is a big deal. Why should I do the right thing if I can get away with it? It seems like you can profit from doing the wrong thing if you can get away with it. And of course, everybody does. Um, people in power do it all the time, right? They don't, right. they don't pay. And so they do it. So um, it starts with this famous story of the Ring of Gyges, which is one of the things that inspired the Lord of the Rings ring, um, where a person basically finds a ring that turns them invisible. This person now has the power to do unjust actions and get away with them, and that's exactly what he does. And uh, Plato's brother, who's talking to Socrates, says, okay, Socrates, you know everyone would do this. What I want you to do is explain to me why they shouldn't, not in the sense that it would be wrong, let's, we'll grant that, but in the sense that it's not in their best interest to do that. And so then the rest of the book um, discusses what a just person is like, that is a person who doesn't use the ring to do wrong, but um, does the right thing no matter what, is just no matter what. So he talks about what a just person is like, what an unjust person is like, He argues that an unjust person is in horrible shape, despite the way it might appear. And and he compares the just person and the unjust person to the city. So it gets into political philosophy a lot as well. Mm. Now, Carrie, is that your read of? Yes, Carrie agrees. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. It's I mean, and then it it dives off into and I don't know how much the other team reads through the the sort of the metaphysics and epistemology of the text, but it gets into all of his um, theories about reality being in a world beyond. And that's, you know, his conception of justice is based on the form of justice as opposed to, right, what these folks are looking at, which is the the common sense approach to justice that is around us. And that's that's why they're erring. and thinking that justice is not beneficial. It's not something that's in our best interest because they're looking at the wrong thing. Well, Carrie, that's a pretty compelling tale that Ray has um, described. Why, why on earth would we not read the Republic? I mean, there's like the Lord of the Rings, you know, connection. There is this, um, 
eternal concept of justice to aspire to. I mean, that's all very compelling. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And I'll, I'll add one up. Ray knows this because we have a, we have a philosophy text chain um, at Bethel. And so we, we text about philosophical things sometimes. So I mentioned for Christmas, I got my nephew um, a philosophy friends book called, um, I think it's Plato, the pig and the ring. And it's about the ring of Gyges and it's drawn from Plato's Republic. And my little three-year-old nephew can now actually say that the pig shouldn't steal um, the sandwiches from his friends, even if he's invisible, because it would make his friends sad. And so he can already, that ring of Gyges story makes sense to him. Um, So it's a very compelling story from the time I think we're very little. I kind of wish that I had known about that book when my own daughter was in the sort of, maybe it's still, maybe, maybe I would enjoy that book. I think you might. I think we all might. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, so given that this is a compelling story from Plato, Carrie, why on earth have we still been reading Aristotle on our team? Yeah. So, and, and interestingly, that the text that we read from Aristotle, his Nicomachean Ethics, comes to a lot of similar conclusions mm. um, politically and um, ethically to Plato's Republic. So one nice thing is that substituting Aristotle for Plato, you're going to get virtue theory coming out of, of both of these thinkers. Um, the perks of, of Aristotle, Aristotle is a systematic thinker. So he writes a treatise on ethics as opposed to a dialogue where we get the story of, you know, men wandering home from a party and going to an after party and talking about justice as they're drinking wine, which is typically how Plato's dialogues work. Instead, Aristotle just jumps right into all men, um, seek happiness, but they, they understand it in a variety of ways. So let's look at what happiness is, what do men mistake happiness for, right? Sometimes they, they mistake it for pleasure, sometimes for wealth, sometimes for notoriety. Um, and then he works systematically through then the virtues, um, thinking about what is it to be human? So the psychology of a human, humans are social and we are intellectual and therefore virtues are um, social or moral virtues and then intellectual virtues. And then the rest of the text is an exploration of moral virtue, intellectual virtue, friendship, and then kind of a nod toward, if you're interested in the political ramifications of this, then you need to read my next text, The Politics, coming out on Amazon soon. And one can almost <laughs> imagine him ending, <laughs> ending the ethics with that. So the, the perk, I think, of, of Aristotle, not nearly as scintillating. Aristotle is a much drier read, as mm. you both know. Um, but uh, it's very systematic in its approach. Um, and so I think that makes it, for some students at least, a little bit easier to read and understand. They know what's happening. Ray, have you ever been tempted, given Carrie's glowing description of Aristotle and its straightforward glory, Um, Have you ever been tempted to use Aristotle um, in your humanities past? Well, we did. We did. Um, I just looked at the syllabus from eight or nine years ago, I guess, and we did use Aristotle then. Now, I do think I was the one who argued for Plato's Republic instead. (laughs) So, but, you know, Aristotle's take on the virtues is, is really powerful. It really, you know, people 
it's another thing that kind of resonates with people, right? The mm -hmm. fact that the virtue is the mean between extremes. A lot of people say, recognize that, yeah, I tend toward this extreme in my behavior and my inclinations. You know, I, I do some things, I'm inclined to do some things too much when I mm -hmm. should do them less. And there's this mean, you know, I can't do too much less, but I, you know, I have to, I have to find the middle and that would be virtuous. And I think that can really, you know, when people think about examples of that in their own life, I think that can really grab you. Mm -hmm. I should say too, with Plato's Republic, so my son has had to read Republic um, for, a, for a class similar to this at another school, similar to humanities. Um, and he read it over Christmas by himself. And he found um, uh, book one absolutely pointless because, you know, you get, you get Socrates, you know, basically showing everyone that the definitions of justice that they give are wrong right? And without saying what justice is. So then in the rest of the book, you see uh, Socrates getting into what justice really is. But then there's a lot in, in the rest of the book too, where he's talking about how the, how the future rulers of the city should be educated. And Plato says some really weird things there. So um, such as some of that we skip. I can't remember the details. There are details about whether they should watch plays or whether. Oh, yeah. I can't remember. Maybe Carrie remembers. Yeah. I mean, he gets it. I mean, so he wants to kick artists out of the Republic <laughs> um, because and again, his his Plato's metaphysical um, conception of reality is that the, the physical world we live in is already an imitation of the perfect world beyond. And so art is an imitation of an imitation uh, of reality. So why in the world would you want to confuse people? So um, if you're concerned about people's education and education is supposed to be making them better citizens, making them better people, then you don't want them confused by visual artists. He thinks the poets lie about the gods, so they should also be kicked out of the Republic. And some musicians are okay because it's mathematical. And so math points us beyond. And so music is okay. So he's really harsh um, against the artist. And then he thinks that the rulers um, shouldn't hold any property. Um, they have everything in common. They live a really sparse life. I think at one point Glaucon talks to Socrates and says, it's like you're, you've designed a system for pigs. No mm -hmm. humans are gonna wanna actually live. Um, in this thing, because it's just too austere. Mm. Um, and then all, um, no one, you're supposed to have a mating festival once a year where all of the best men and the best women um, have children and then those children are raised in common so that no one knows whose parents are, are whose. So you can't have nepotism in your society. So the family is gotten rid of. Yeah. Um, and I'm a little... I'm a little shocked that uh, a team even has this on the on the play. Is that the, that's the section you skip over, though, isn't it, Ray? Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> you know, and and I don't know if this is in Plato's defense, but I take it there are questions about whether Plato is being serious there. Um, yes. I don't know the I I don't know if that question can be answered. But yeah, and I don't. Yeah, it's it's hard to tell. I know that you know there is a point in the Republic where. Um, uh, Socrates, the character, has described this city, and people are starting to say, "No one would really want to live here. How do we make this and make this better, more compelling?" And Socrates' character, at a certain point, says, "Ah, I see that what you're interested in is the luxurious city, not the healthy city." And so there's some speculation that everything after that point is Plato saying, 
okay, fine. No one's going to like my ideal form of the city. Here's how to make it work in this not as good way. Wow. I'm a little speechless, but I'm also like thinking as an American historian, like these ideas about how to breed selectively, those ideas have popped up um, even as, you know, as late as the 20th century. Um, This whole idea of raising children in common was definitely part of the Oneida community in New York in the 1840s. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh So. Yeah. And, and here's where, again, Plato and Aristotle politically, ethically align pretty, pretty nicely. So Aristotle really, his, his virtue theory is drawn from Plato's Republic and the idea of the virtues. And he just sort of takes it in a more systematic direction. But Aristotle thinks that the family is incredibly important and that the virtues and the entire political system, in fact, is built around not just family, but friendship. Right. Um, and so this idea, and he, he argues that you won't even really need laws um, if you have strong friendships, strong relationships and strong family. So the two are quite opposite um, in terms of the role of the family and what, what the virtuous political life looks like um, because of Aristotle's okay with relationships, whereas Plato's not about the physical world. So those- right. Right. Yeah. You know, in, in a, in a sense, Plato's more, more pie in the sky, right? You stop and think about it and this is the way things should be, but Aristotle's more, okay, let's look how things actually function. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we want to look at how, how people actually behave, how cities actually run rather than, you know, sitting and thinking about what would be ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that sort of captures their, their difference in a nutshell. I mean, you've got, uh, who's is it Raphael's painting um, where you have uh, famously Aristotle and Plato walking together in the front of the painting and Plato's gesturing at the sky, you know, the world of the forms and, and Aristotle's gesturing at the earth. Is mm-hmm. it, that's, that's where you find out what's true um, mm-hmm. by, by yeah. studying the way things really are. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, one of the, Here's where, despite my love for Aristotle, I'm going to say one of the other perks of Plato um, is also maybe a drawback of Plato, that in the Republic, you get his metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and politics all rolled into one mass. Um, And so you get a sense of where his ethics is coming from, right? It's easy to understand, oh, in his allegory of the cave, right? You've got this, the virtues are connected to the forms and we need to learn more about that. And we need to escape from the physical world. I think it's all connected very nicely. Whereas for Aristotle, because he writes these treatises and it's not possible to have students in a humanities program uh, read all of his metaphysics and his de anima and his physics uh, and his posterior analytics, you, you can't fit that all into one, one reading. Mm. So you don't, you don't understand that Plato versus Aristotle, Raphael painting as, as nicely. Right. I would always, sorry, I'm barging in here, but I would always, um, I refer to that in my lecture on Plato and Aristotle because I didn't, you know, we didn't have enough time to talk about Aristotle in any detail. Um, Just to get back to though, again, to why it's so great studying Plato, that allegory of the cave, so in the cave, basically, you get people trapped in the cave thinking that that's what's real, more or less, and, and they're in the physical world. 
And what they don't realize is that the physical world in some, you know, it's not what really matters. There's, it's, it's illusory in some ways. And so what has to happen to the philosopher, the person who ends up ruling the city, is they have to get out of the, out of the cave and see the forms. But that whole notion of being in a world of deception where you don't, where, where you're being deceived about what's really going on, that's kind of a fertile idea for students to think about ways in which we're being deceived um, and ways in which uh, enlightenment can be sought. Mm-hmm. And most of them don't think about the immaterial realm, but there are still ways of finding out what's really going on um, and ways in which uh, we're being deceived or misled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And it connects Plato's idea of the allegory of the cave connects nicely then to jumping forward to the enlightenment and to some of Descartes ideas about deception and and where reality is to be found. And so Plato in that way acts as a really, really nice precursor to Descartes and the rationalists. But on the other side of thing, Aristotle also concerned about how we know about the proper objects of knowledge and about the proper processes of gaining knowledge, but he is going to be a great precursor to the empiricist, to your Locke, your Hume. Um, and so they're, they're both very interested in theories of knowledge, but Plato thinks the dialectic, this conversational um, method of getting us toward the good, this immaterial is the way to do it. And Aristotle thinks, no, we got to do science and we need to demonstrate. We need logic and science. That's, that's where reality is found. That's how we get to knowledge. Okay, so this makes me ask another question. Since you both at least have spent a lot of time in the classroom, I know Ray is now administering things, but did you find when you were teaching Plato and Aristotle in maybe philosophy classes, did you see your scientists actually gravitate then toward Aristotle and the more humanities students gravitate toward Plato? Or was it sort of difficult to make that kind of grouping? That's a fantastic question. Ray, have you ever noticed yeah, I've never taught Aristotle's metaphysics in, that, that I can remember. I've never taught ancient medieval and, and in um, humanities, you just sort of, you know, gesture mm-hmm. at it. I do know, though, that um, that in Plato's Republic, where he where Plato, well, Socrates, ends up talking about what it's like to be an unjust person with, with your desires, your appetitive desires out of control and reason, your reason not governing your behavior and your desires – um, that can be really powerful for people. I mean, it, it, it really is a powerful, um, powerful analogy about how people's character can be derailed. So I think that really hits, that, that can really hit people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but Aristotle's virtues can as well. Yeah, yeah. And Aristotle is, you know, for, for people who, and this is going to, it's going to come across that I like Aristotle, um, for people who are kind of black and white, and they think, if you just get your mind right, and know the good, you will do the good. I think that works really well, right? Plato works very, very well. Aristotle's great, though, because he's like, we don't judge people when they err. Um, And we don't blame people for their dispositions. If you have naturally too much passion, you can't help it. And so virtue for you is you're going to aim toward the other extreme, right? So, and so it's this beautiful system that Aristotle develops that's a lot more forgiving mm-hmm. um, and a lot more about the, the process of learning. Um, 
And so I, I think that's compelling um, to students equally. I don't know, like back to your question, I don't know that I've ever um, noticed that humanity students are more drawn to Plato and science, science students are more drawn to Aristotle. But I have noticed, because I do teach these two um, thinkers back to back, um, and usually, and I don't just teach the Republic and the Nicomachean Ethics, I teach the Republic and the Mino and the Phaedo and parts of the symposium for Plato. And then I teach the ethics, the metaphysics, de anima and posterior analytics and physics for Aristotle. So they do a lot of both. And what I find in general is that people are strongly drawn to one or the other. Mm. Generally, if they like and they find Plato easy to read, they are gonna hate Aristotle. And if they hate Plato, they're gonna love and be drawn to Aristotle. And I haven't been able to assess a personality type that's drawn toward one or the other, but it's a pretty strong distinction. And I would say that just talking to the two of you, you actually sound like you are fairly balanced that while Carrie, obviously you have a strong preference for Aristotle, you've been able to talk very persuasively about the appeal of Plato and Ray seems to be able to do the same in reverse, if you will. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think in an ideal world, the humanities program would teach both. Right. Because it's really hard. I mean, one of the things that's hard in our cohort of humanities has been trying to teach Aristotle without Plato, right? I have to do a lot of fancy footwork to catch people up. And then you guys on your team have had to just skip over Aristotle um, or not really give him his due. His Right. Right. And I would just, in my lecture, I think I'd have sort of a chart, you know, that we take the last five minutes on about where, you know, where truth can be found mm-hmm. you know, versus Aristotle. So yes, unsatisfactory, yeah. but, but yeah, what you can do. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that we like to do with our texts is we like to choose texts that we f- think connect well to other texts in the humanities program. And that then can lead to decisions about why we might choose Aristotle, why we might choose Plato. So let's, I'm going to go back to Ray and say, for you, what do you see Plato connecting to in terms of other texts in the course? Where do you see yourself later on in the humanities program going, oh, and then this kind of relates back to what we were talking about with Plato, the forms or what have you? Well, first of all, my true confession, I'm sometimes not very good at that, you know, as, as far as actually in class, you know, I sort of get stuck in what we're in and I, I know other people have a better um, are, are, are better at drawing, drawing on what we've done before. It sort of comes more naturally while I have to sort of imitate what they're doing. But um, no, Augustine fits well. I don't know. Do you do Augustine's Confessions? Yes, you do. One of the things that's so funny early in, in the Confessions, at least, you know, it seems so bizarre, is he really, you know, castigates himself for enjoying plays so much, which is, <laughs> you know, there's something Plato-like about that. Um, <laughs> So I mean, he has he has his reasons for doing that, but uh, then then you get to um, to Jonathan Edwards too. In some ways, you know, Carrie mentioned that if if you know the good, you'll do it. Uh, you know, for for Jonathan Edwards, when he perceives beauty, you know, you're just drawn to it, and it changes you. Um, so there there's something there. You know, it changes the direction of your inclinations. Mm-hmm. So there's there there's something Plato like there too. You know, if you see gaze on the good. Mm-hmm. Um, with reason that that can direct your um, your inclinations that can enable reason to be in control of your passions. Er, 
Um, so there's some similarities there. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll get to you in a second, Carrie, because you know I'm going to ask the same question about Aristotle. But of course, in Humanities 3, we're having the Burke pain discussion. And just the way that you've talked mm-hmm. about kind of the more pragmatic versus the ideal, I almost wonder, is there a connection? And this could be a terrible question. I mean, in some ways, pain seems like the Plato. Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah. I mean, okay. play, talk about talk about pie in the sky, right? I mm-hmm. mean, he sits back and thinks, oh, this is the way people should be. You know, they should be free and, you know, then everything will be great. Mm. Uh, but Burke, on the other hand, is no, let's let's appeal to tradition. Let's let's look at how things have worked mm-hmm. and not pretend we can, you know, destroy everything and, and um, appeal to some ideal and make our society uh, match that. It's not mm-hmm. going to work. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Dan Ritchie, if you're listening, I hope you appreciate that I worked Burke and Payne yet again into another podcast. Okay, Carrie, same question for you, but about Aristotle. Yeah, so I mean, I think um, Aristotle works nicely, obviously, as a precursor to we do uh, Aquinas. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Aquinas is so heavily reliant upon Aristotle, which is really nice. But I think um, for Dante as well, his purgatory is so based around virtue theory um, and not just Aristotle's virtue theory, but some of the earlier medieval Arabic interpretations of Aristotle that Dante is familiar with, um, that Aristotle and Dante pair really, really nicely together. Um, And then Erasmus and the Catholic Reformation, um, the canons of the Council of Trent use Aristotelian language to talk about transubstantiation. So they use Aristotelian notions of substance Mm -hmm. to talk about transubstantiation, Mm -hmm. um, various causal influences to talk about how we're saved. Um, So suddenly the Catholic Reformation makes a whole lot of sense to our Protestant students Mm -hmm. because they've got Aristotle um, as as sort of a paradigm. I think that was my argument initially in why I wanted us to shift to Aristotle. I said, essentially, we're teaching all Protestant evangelical students. They're going to be Platonists intuitively. Mm. It'd be nice if they get Aristotle for the other the other approach, even though both of them are really important. And and do you, Carrie, see a connection too between Aristotle's virtue theory and even Ben Franklin's sort of bastardization of it? Yes, yes, definitely. And in fact, that's a that's kind of a fun pairing. Um, ben Franklin's little, and I tried for a little while, and I figured I could master all of the virtues. Um, yes, yeah, I think you can see it in in the Enlightenment thinkers for sure. I wish our listeners could see that Ray is grinning. I don't know if it was because I used the word bastardization or what, but Ray, do you want to, do you want to? No, I, I love Ben Franklin's, you know, he keeps a diary, doesn't he? Of a, yeah. you know, sort of charts yeah. his, a his log. Yep. Uh-huh. It's, 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 it's a great read. Um, yeah. Franklin on that. It's, you know, today I mastered this virtue. Right. <laughs> Well, and I, of course, always love that it occurred to him only after a Quaker friend indicated that maybe humility might be a virtue he should add to the list that, in fact, he would he would he would put that on the list. But then he later comments, I only mastered the appearance of humility, but even mastering the appearance of humility was great for me because it allowed me to be very persuasive (laughs) in making my point, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) But this is also where we get um, Aristotle's emphasis on. Um, habit showing up too in terms of 
how we attain virtue. It's not just aspiring to an ideal. It's actually really important for us to spend time. And I think that's not a very appealing idea in some ways because it's hard. Right. It is much harder. And I think that's why it plays so nicely with Dante's purgatory, because you see how hard that habit formation is, um, that, that people who have died struggling with a particular vice are going to have to spend a lot of time developing proper habits before they're ready to be purified. An appropriate conversation for the Lenten season, I might add. Indeed. Oh, yeah. And I mean, speaking of, you know, you think about people who... Um, say, uh, try to eat better during Lent, you know, just hypothetically try to <laughs> junk food during Lent. And then of course, Easter comes and you just fall right back into the old habits, which I mean, shows you, um, first of all, that there's uh, some, that they're not doing it right. 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 But um, also it's so difficult to fall off the bandwagon, those habits, it takes a long time for them to be really ingrained in a person's character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, very true. Well, the last thing I wanted to make sure that I learned from the two of you is a little bit, and Ray, you talked about this already. Again, having not read Plato, um, it sounds like Plato was very much of the same mind as his master, Socrates. Is that true or is that not true? I don't know. I mean, one of the one of the issues in Plato's scholarship is how much Plato was echoing Socrates you know, he always, Socrates is always or almost always Plato's mouthpiece, mm-hmm. but there's the question of at what point is Plato um, using Socrates' actual words, and at what point does Plato actually strike out on his own? Okay. And I, the general idea is that in book two of Republic, that's Plato from then on. Book one mm-hmm. is, is Socrates, and, and it's very unsatisfying how book one ends, and I think, you know, the idea is that Plato sort of realized that Socrates, you know, Socratic questioning without ever coming to an answer wasn't satisfying. And he tries to rectify that in the rest of the book. Okay, that's helpful. Because then when we get to Aristotle, who is the student of Plato, Aristotle is very clear that he is taking on the ideas of Plato. And in, in some fundamental ways, as we, you know, point to the painting, um, mm-hmm disagreeing with them. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, Aristotle's first treatise is a work called The Categories, which is a work on logic and, and grammar. And in five, five paragraphs of his first treatise, he says that the forms don't exist and his teacher was stupid. So it, it doesn't take him very long to separate himself logically, metaphysically, and epistemologically from his teacher. Mm-hmm. But then in ethics and politics, the ideals and the way things function in good society seem to somehow align. And I've always found that fascinating that despite their two completely different methodologies, epistemologies and metaphysics, they both ended up in roughly the same spot ethically and politically. Mm-hmm. Well, and I did actually write down a last question, but in some ways, um, even the beginning of our conversation answered it. And this was sort of this idea that clearly we think that these ideas on their own are interesting and should be studied for their own sake. And yet we also hope that students see the relevance of these ideas, even in the present day. And Ray, you even started by saying, well, this question of why should I act justly when 
I don't need to, or when somebody can't see me acting, like what's the value that like, that actually is a very relevant question, but did you want to say a little bit more about that or other ways in which you see Plato's ideas being still quite relevant for students today? I think your what you said about pain was, was good. I think, you know, there's, there are ways in which, um, uh, you know, political radicals are sort of thinking in, platonic ways, like there's this ideal, we have to, you know, take huge steps and leaps to get there. Um, that's, that seems relevant too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, as far as Plato's metaphysics goes, you know, that this idea that there is beauty itself, that all beautiful things participate in, to me, that's really intuitive, but um, I don't see how it impacts, I think this is fair, I don't see how it impacts my daily life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't think that grabs students in quite the same practical way uh, mm-hmm. that, that the ethics do and, and that the application to political philosophy might. Okay. Mm-hmm. Same question for you, Carrie, but obviously on Aristotle. Yeah. Yep. So definitely, I think that the Burke pain conversation is a, is a, a great one um, and maybe it describes why I'm also so, despite not necessarily being politically conservative, why I find Burke so incredibly compelling mm-hmm. um, because he is so practical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that sort of pragmatic approach to doing things, I think is going to be a very compelling um, compelling thing for 21st century readers um, applying to a variety of areas. We're not focusing on ideals. Instead, we're focusing on how can we make the systems work and how do we learn how to make systems work based on what's worked best in the past, as opposed to um, throwing out the baby with the bathwater or focusing on some otherworldly ideal. Gotcha. Okay. Well, we have two questions left. This is kind of the, since Carrie and I are done with um, humanities one through four for our team, and I'm just stepping in briefly to replace Andy on humanities three. um, One of the questions we've sort of been having fun with um, is if you got to bring in a text of your choosing to the humanities program, Ray, what would it be? Maybe something that we don't, you're like, Oh, wow. That was an interesting look. Are you just thinking? Or you're like, wow, you should have sent me that question. <laughs> yeah, that, that one, I don't, I, I don't have an answer off, off the top of my head. I mean, I think, you know, I can think of the stuff I particularly love to read. I, and I think about, you know, um, Carrie mentioned Descartes. Mm-hmm. And um, what I want us to do, Descartes' meditations um, in introducing the Enlightenment, I'm not sure. Because I'm not sure what I'd, wanna, what I'd want it to replace. So off the top of my head, I don't have a straight answer just because I like the works we do so much. I mean, I, yeah, so I, I don't have a, I, there, there's nothing that we read that I think, no, let's get rid of it. I've always not really enjoyed Candide very much, but um, I'm pretty much overruled on that one. <laughs> so maybe if we could slide some kind of Descartes in place of Candide, maybe. Yeah, that would be. I swear at one point we did do both Descartes and Voltaire because <laughs> I remember teaching Descartes meditations and I certainly don't do that in my philosophy classes because that's too far. Right. It's too modern for me. Okay. Well, something to think about. Okay. And then our last question, of course, Ray, is what's on your nightstand? What are you reading for fun? Because deans still read for fun, right? Well, actually, I mean, Yes. Uh, deans read for fun, but I, I can read deeper stuff 
now because I don't get the deeper stuff in um, in humanities. I don't. I don't. I'm. I'm not reading the deeper stuff as part of my work, part of my job. So um, I just finished reading Crime and Punishment not oh, too long ago. Fantastic. So, um, yes. Yes, that was a powerful book, mm-hmm. and. Um, I read uh, Nick, Nicholas Wolterstorff. He's a he's yep. a famous Christian philosopher who taught at Calvin and at Yale. I read his autobiography. Oh. And now I'm reading a book about running that my wife Janelle recommended. It's called Born to Run. I, d- I don't know if it was it was a bestseller, and it's about a guy exploring uh, some group of people in sort of isolated in Mexico who run a lot and very far. So oh. I. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be able to remember the name of of this group of people. Oh, this is where our TA is great. I'm sorry. This is where our TA is great. She'll she'll track it down. Look it up. Yeah, born born to run, and I I wish I had it in the room here with me, but I don't. Is it good? I mean, are you enjoying it? Um, yes. I haven't had much time to read it, and I'm not very far. And Janelle tells me it gets going past where I where I'm at in the book, and she says it's really inspirational. And when it comes to running these days, I need inspiration. So I'm hoping for the best. Okay. That when you finish the book, you will want to get back into distance running. Right. And my, and my legs will agree with me. Right. Right on. Well, Carrie, what are you reading? What's on your nightstand? So I have finished one Terry Pratchett book, Jingo, and started another Terry Pratchett book okay. called Monstrous, Monstrous Regiment. Um, which is about women in the military, um, about a woman who, in fact, hides her female identity so that she can um, join join the ar- army. And she is monstrous. It sort of fit with what we were talking about last week with, with uh, witchcraft and women being monstrous. Um, so it fits in that. And then I'm reading this book that, Ray, you might be um, interested in as well by Catherine Elgin on art and epistemology. Oh. Um, she's arguing that truth conducivity is no longer as helpful as we might think. And so art might be a better way of getting at something like truth. Oh, wow. so, fascinating so far. Yeah. She's a very good philosopher. I studied her stuff in grad school. Oh, cool. And, well, and I, on yours. Yeah. So I took Jen McNabb's um, last words about reading and not feeling compelled to finish a book that you're not necessarily enjoying to heart. And I basically skimmed through huge amounts of Raintree County so that I could kind of get to the wrap up of the main storyline that I enjoyed and then closed the book and moved on. And I'm currently reading a uh, detective story, kind of mystery story um, called Iron Lake by the author William Kent Kruger. It is set in Minnesota. Many of the characters are at least part or maybe all Native American. It's um, not taxing on my brain, but it is enjoyable. So I'm making my way through Iron Lake. Very nice. Ray, it's been great chatting with you. Um, Again, feel grateful that you were able to make time for us. And uh, it's fun. Yeah. Enjoy it. And and you've been listening to Bookish at Ethel. 